And I hope, and our hope for you, uh, if you're a first or second time guest, and everybody in the room, is that you are transformed by the presence of God today. So, so I, I realized that Josh didn't give clear instructions on tithing, and I saw some of you a little confused. So if you wanted to give today and you weren't able to, or if you came in late, you can always put it in the baskets at the back of the worship center on the way out. Some of you physically can't walk up front. We've decided that our giving, which I love what he talked about, about his, what God's speaking to him about this Christmas, is we believe giving is part of our act of worship. And so instead of just passing plates, we actually make a movement towards God and give to him with our, with our part of our worship, right? It's pretty awesome. We, I saw another church do it, and I fell in love with it, so we decided to try that here. So I understand that it, not everybody's going to want to walk up front. That's okay, so you can put it in the baskets in the back. You know, God doesn't need your money, right? He wants your obedience, so this isn't about money. You know that. Do you know that if you shake any one of your family trees that you'll never know what kind of strange people might fall out of that tree. Now, because we're live on Facebook, and some of my relatives watch us every week, I'm not going to tell you who they are in my family. But just like me, I bet you have some in your family. Right? Some of you are laughing because you brought them with you today. Bobby, who, Dave. Some of you dropped your head down because you think you're that strange one in your family. But if we're honest, we all have a relative or two that we try to avoid at family gatherings, right? And we whisper about them behind closed doors. No surprise there. But here's something that you probably didn't know. Jesus had a few shady characters in his family tree as well. He had some relatives that will make the, some of your wackiest redneck cousins look like saints. And that's what this series is all, all about. So I'm going to introduce you through a video series that we're going to play every week. And the, and the video series is going to build every week uh, some wacky people from Velma's Diner uh, as we combine shady family members with the meaning of Christmas. Sounds twisted, doesn't it? Maybe you'll be able to relate to a character in these videos. Maybe you'll be able to recognize someone from your family that you can relate them to. Here they are. Like I have enough breath to do that. And a very Merry Christmas to you too, buddy. <laughs> Here you go, Henry. Can I warm that coffee up for you, sugar? No, I'm fine. No, I didn't ask how you look today, Henry. I asked if you'd like some more coffee. Now, Velma, if you talk like that, you could have warm up more than my coffee. <laughs> oh, Henry. <laughs> oh, good morning, boys. Is it already time for your second mid-morning coffee break? Slow and steady wins the race, Velma. Well, Bert, you boys got it locked up then. <laughs> Morning, Nadine. Did you get home late last night? No, I wouldn't say I got home late. Well, from the looks of you, I wouldn't say you made it home at all. You must be going for the Walker Shame Hall of Fame. <laughs> Excuse me, miss. Oh, the only thing you missed, darling, is my name. It's Velma. Show your stool. I beg your pardon? A stool. 
All my tables are full, so a stool's all I've got unless you want to get it to go, and then you can take it and eat it wherever you want. Oh, <laughs> no, thank you. I'm not here to eat. Uh, smart girl. Watch it, Henry. You might just get a check today. <laughs> well, darling, if I can't feed you, what can I do for you? I'm from the Fountain of Grace Memorial Church, and I wanted to see if I could place a poster in your window. Oh, well, I don't see why not. What are you selling? Baked goods or raffle tickets? Bingo? <laughs> no. It's an advertisement for our annual Christmas pageant. We've never advertised in this part of town before and thought that it might help. Oh, well, I've always said what we really need around here is a good Christmas pageant. <laughs> Let's see what we've got here. Okay, because tree lives, a musical celebration. It's a living Christmas tree. You don't say. Mm -hmm. I saw the living Christmas tree a couple of years ago. Oh. It was some kind of pretty. Yeah. There must have been a hundred people. A hundred and twenty-five. All dressed in green. Match the tree. They had red balls on their head and icicles hanging from it's their ears. It's a moving experience. Oh, I'm getting kind of woozy just hearing about it. Excuse me? <laughs> oh, nothing, sugar. So, you'll display the poster? Well, I don't see why not. But you know, if you really want some help, we can do a lot more than just put a poster in the window. How do you mean? Well, some of the most talented people in town walk right through that door. Oh. <laughs> Absolutely. Nobody sings harmony better than the Spencer twins. Uh, Velma, uh, they're locked up because of the fight? Oh, yeah. Well, they'll be out in five days. Nadine here, she can sing and dance better than Beyonce. Beyond what? Beyonce. You know, all the single ladies, all the single ladies, all the single ladies. Sings like an angel. Well, as soon as uh, tongue heals from the piercing. Well, and I can play the spoons. Really? A poster in the window is more than enough from you people. Come again. More than enough from you people. I don't mean to be rude. It's just that we thought it would be real nice if you. Pe we thought it would be real nice if other people were allowed to come to watch the celebration, but we never dreamed that you'd be a part. Now, surely you're not saying that we're good enough to come to your program, but not good enough to be in your program. Now, I didn't exactly say that exactly. Well, if I wasn't exactly the opposite kind of woman that you think I am, I wouldn't exactly tell you where you could put your poster. But for now, I think it's just best that you stick a bow on it and shove it under your living Christmas tree. Yeah, talk about nerve. Don't worry about it, Velma. She deserved it. Not her, you dipstick. Who does she think she is telling us that we're not good enough to climb some tree and stick a ball on our head and sing about Christmas? Yeah, I climbed a tree once and I put a pumpkin on my head, but I didn't sing. Uh, well, uh, Velma, you need to calm down. Uh, she may be right. What? Well, let's face it. We are not church folk. Me and the boys like to play cards, have a beer or two. And uh, Nadine knows her way around more than a dance floor. And you never told us much about your past. Well, I'm not saying that we're perfect, Henry, but I do think that we're good enough to celebrate Christmas. Well, uh, and that's just what we're going to do. What's that, sugar? We're going to celebrate Christmas right here in the diner. We'll show that Fountain of Grace Memorial Church. We'll serve up Christmas Velma style, served with a smile. <laughs> they can just stick that in their window and look at it. <laughs>
So I promise you at some point in this series, if not already, like I did, you're going to say, what in the world does this have to do with Christmas? So I'm just going to ask you to hang around uh, for the four weeks or five weeks that we're going to do this leading up to Christmas, and you will see why these people are an important part of the Christmas story. Now, your notes this morning are in the back of your bulletin if you want to uh, fill in the blanks along with me. There's not very many of them, but that's okay. It helps keep you awake, and it helps you remember uh, what you've what God's pointed out to you this morning. So one of the cool things that we have, but we take for granted, is that we have four accounts of the life of Not a book full of neat fictional stories just to inspire you. It's a collection of ancient manuscripts. These are historical documents, and we have four that tell us of the life of Jesus. Now, they're similar but they are not identical because four different authors wrote them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay. And the interesting thing is that when it comes to Christmas, two of them do not say anything about the birth of Jesus. Mark and John begin with the ministry of John the Baptist, which is 30 or so years after Jesus was born. Matthew and Luke, however, both talk about the birth of Jesus, but Luke begins with the announcement of the angel. So at least three of them start out with a story. But Matthew, and you can start turning there if you want, because you're going to see this right away. Matthew, Matthew's gospel is really unique because he doesn't start out with a story at all. He starts out his account of the Christmas story and the life of Jesus with Jesus' family tree, with a genealogy list. Isn't that interesting? In fact, most of us, when, we're, when we read Matthew, we skip over this long list of Jesus' relatives because we would think, why does this list matter? Why did Matthew include it? Because I don't really know any of the people on this list, so what does it matter to me? Eventually, Matthew does get to the story of Jesus, but he starts in Matthew chapter 1 like this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. All right, so just listen. It'll be up here in a minute. This is the genealogy of Jesus, because this really is it. We're going to focus in on verse 3 in a minute. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah. And there it goes, on and on and on and on. And on and on and on, Matthew gives this list, and he begins with Abraham, and he eventually, by verse 16, he finally gets to Jesus. And again, most of us, to most of us, that's not even interesting. It's boring, right? One would wonder, why would Matthew begin his version of Jesus' story with a genealogy? And there are a couple of reasons that I just want to point out before we actually really get into the message. Number one, because it's really important. Number one, the reason that he does this is he was speaking to a Jewish audience. And he is about to make the case that Jesus is, in fact the Son of God, the Messiah. Because the first question a Jewish audience is going to ask before they hear the rest of Jesus' story is, if you're saying he's the Messiah, we need to know if Jesus is related to David. Because if he's not related to David, then we, we will not take him seriously. Because God promised in Scripture that they knew that David would have a descendant on the throne. And if you're going to say that there is a physical Messiah standing in front of us, then he must be related to David. That's what a Jewish audience would have wanted to know. 
So Matthew decided to start by answering the question, who is Jesus ultimately related to? So Matthew gives us this genealogy. But then Matthew does something very, very unusual, and this is why you don't want to skip over, because you could go to other parts of the Bible where there's chapters after chapters of genealogy. This is just 16 verses. But Matthew does something unusual and something a bit strange, and you're going to notice that the genealogy up there on the screen, and then that's just a piece of it, is mostly male-dominated, which makes sense for a lot of reasons, but it makes sense because they would start with the father and work towards King David. But Matthew throws in four women as well into Jesus' family tree that we're about to shake to see what falls out of it, Okay. Not only does he throw in a few women, but he also seems to pause at some points with certain individuals in that tree. That if you, if you were in charge of charting out the son of God's family tree, you would probably make it a point to leave these people out of it on purpose. Because you would want for people to see that Jesus is from a divine family tree, a pure tree, not a tree with some crazies in it like our family trees. Right? That's probably what you would do. But Matthew seems to do something to totally disrupt or shake the tree hard enough to cause some bad apples to fall out of it. For all of humanity to see, as we're going to see today. We're going to begin today anyways. Now, is Matthew being bad? Is he being evil for doing this? Well, you just have to stay awake to find out. Are you ready? The second reason that this is interesting and fascinating about why Matthew started with this genealogy in ancient times, when uh, historians would write about history, they would always hire someone to write their story. Leaders would hire people to write their own story for history. Do you know why? So that they could be in control of what was written. Doesn't that make sense? Some of you are like, what if I went to your family gathering and just picked a random relative to write your story? You probably wouldn't be happy with me, right? You would want to choose the person that writes your story um, because they only wanted the good things written down, like the victories and the accomplishments, the positive things about their life, and none of the negative. They wanted all of that to be left out because we all want to be seen in a positive light, right? They would make a big deal about their sons if they were famous, if they were famous warriors or fighters or the ones who did amazing things, they, but they would skip over or hardly mention the sons who did very little or who didn't turn out so well. In fact, in some cases in their histories, they wouldn't even mention their sons because they were so ashamed of them. Why mention them if they didn't do anything spectacular? I mean, you don't talk about your drunk uncle all the time. You're ashamed. Why would they, right? That makes sense, right? My point is this. People who wrote history wrote with a point in mind. They wrote with the purpose to make an emperor or a family or a king or leader look good. Then we come to this ancient document in Matthew that begins with the genealogy of Jesus. And in your notes, Matthew went out of his way to make us question some of the people in Jesus' family tree. That's a little crazy because that's not even what you did back then when you were writing the history of somebody. He's starting out Jesus' story with some people that he could have just left out, but he included into his family tree, into the genealogy. 
People that he didn't have to mention at all, and we wouldn't have known any different, right? Again, in a genealogy, typically, back then at least, it would have been all men that they mentioned because he's trying to connect the man Jesus to the man David for his Jew Jewish audience. And he gives us the names of four women, and two of these women, honestly, when you hear their story, especially next week, he shouldn't have mentioned them at all. And three of these out of the four women aren't even Jewish. But he goes out of the way to say, hey, did you guys know, did you know that Jesus, Jesus does not have a pure bloodline? This Messiah that I'm about to tell you about is not even from a pure Jewish bloodline. There's a mix, and there's some bad apples in this tree. You ready to look at it? Let's begin with verse 3. Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Do you know who Tamar is? He introduces us to Tamar. Now, do you know that there are verses about Tamar that shouldn't even be read in a church? And we're going to read about her next week. So there's your reason for not missing next Sunday. You're, you want to know about, I can't believe Matthew included her in this tree. And next week you're going to find out why that's so way out there for Matthew to do. And there are some verses about her that you're going to have to read on your own. But there was no reason whatsoever for Matthew to mention Tamar. Hey, Matthew, just stick to the guys, man. Why did you bring her up? Matthew pauses, throws this woman into the list who wasn't even Jewish. And every Jew listening knew her story. So he knew they would know when he mentioned her name that they knew the story of Tamar. And they were probably a little confused about why Matthew would add her to Jesus' storyline. Matthew goes on in verse 3. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. So here he throws in another woman, second woman. Whoa, Rahab? She's not Jewish either, and if I remember correctly, Rahab had a nickname, didn't she? Don't say it out loud. There was just no reason to bring this up in the introduction to the story of Jesus. Now, if you know the rest of her story, you know that after the people, uh, people of Israel conquered Canaan, she left prostitution. She joined the Jewish people and became a respectable married woman. But why, Matthew? Why even mention her? Verse 5 goes on. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, Ruth is a good story. In fact, there's a whole book in the Bible named Ruth, right? I'm glad Matthew threw her in there because I'm kind of feeling like the women are about to beat me up in the room, right? Because we're kind of like pounding on women. Why are you saying all the women are evil? Hey, I, I didn't write their story. I didn't live their story. They did. And all I'm pointing out is why did he put these women in here? That's our question. Because one of the problems with Ruth is that she's not Jewish either. And if you know the story of Ruth, it's a little strange. It's a little odd how she even got into this family tree. The point is, if you're trying to connect Jesus with David, why all these side ramps? Why these distractions of these people that didn't need to be mentioned at all? Verse 5 concludes into verse 6. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. There, stop right there. You don't need to say another thing. But Matthew's putting a little zinger in there, and he goes, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. 
Why not stop at King David? Why mention any of the women he was involved with? David and Solomon, just men, just the men. Why put in there whose mother had been, ooh, had been Uriah's wife? He didn't even need to mention her name. Do you know why he probably did? Because everyone listening knew who this woman was, even though he didn't mention her name. By the way, who knows who Solomon's mother was? Bathsheba. Remember, Jerry, nine years ago when I preached this? This is the only series I've ever repeated. Nine years ago when you were in my Sunday school class, we taught on Bathsheba and David. Remember that? Don't look. Don't open the window, Jerry. You don't have to be a church person to know about David and Bathsheba, right? Matthew doesn't even use her name. Instead, he tries to add a little zinger in this tree, and he says, whose mother had been or was another man's wife. So the people listening to this would be thinking, oh man, why in the world? Okay, Tamar maybe, Rahab you're pushing it, but why in the world would you bring this up again? I want to think about great things of David. We don't want to think about his flaws. We don't want to think about the big, bad, ugly scar on David's life that he wished he had, had never happened and he asked for forgiveness for. Why are you bringing it up? And yet, Matthew brings it up again while showing us all of Jesus' relatives and this one who had an affair with her husband's best friend and that David went out and killed him so he could steal her for himself. To everyone who says the Bible is boring, bah humbug to you because it's crazy with stories that are just so intriguing, including a genealogy in the beginning of Jesus' story like this. Now, I bet if you haven't, you are now officially asking yourself, what in the world does this have to do with Christmas? Well, to find out again, you're going to have to stay awake. Ready? Matthew hasn't even gotten to the story yet, and he's going out of his way to stir up this tension with bad apples related to Jesus in your notes. So we need to ask the question, why? Why? Why did he throw in these certain women, these individuals. He could have mentioned Sarah, right? Sarah's a great story. He could have mentioned Rebecca, right? I mean, come on, Matthew. There's a lot of people you could have thrown in there. Why these bad apples? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Solomon's mother, who was Uriah's wife. Why did Matthew do this? Now, here's maybe why. Because Matthew had spent three years with Jesus. Matthew heard Jesus teach. Matthew saw Jesus die on the cross. And Matthew stood next to an empty tomb. And Matthew knew all of these shady characters. Not personally, but he knew about them, right? And he knew about their baggage. He knew about all of their sin. And he knew all about all the details of their embarrassing stories. You know, the stuff that we try to cover up. Matthew, in your notes, knew that they were the point to the story that he was about to tell. That's why Matthew added them. They were the point. Matthew couldn't start the story of Jesus. He couldn't start the story of Christmas without telling you about the bad apples. Because also in your notes, Matthew knew that sin was the issue that Jesus came to address. Right? Jesus didn't come for sinners only. He also came from sinners. And that was okay, because it was the point of Jesus' story, it's the point of the Christmas story, and it's the point of your story. Also in your notes, Matthew knew that this story was about light coming into darkness, life coming into an environment characterized by death. It was a story to break down the old law. It was a story of forgiveness. 
What motivated Matthew to put these shady characters into Jesus' genealogy? Forgiveness. Everybody say forgiveness. forgiveness. So please listen to me. Because that's one of the main points of this message. Please, please, stop beating yourself up and staying in the valley and ask God for forgiveness and get out of the valley. Number two, stop beating yourself up after you ask for forgiveness. Let it go, man. He already paid for it on the cross. Let it go. Everybody say, let it go. Okay? You've been forgiven. Stop wallowing around in your self-pity and your guilt and shame. Be free. Number three, make sure you forgive others. Do you know what's scary about that? Because we think we have a right to punish others when they do something to us. You know what's really scary about that? Do you know what the Bible says since we just kind of in the middle of a Driven by Eternity series? The Bible says if you do not forgive you will not be forgiven. In other words, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven because forgiven people go to heaven, not good people. Forgiven people. That's why this is so huge. That's why we have to mention some bad apples in Jesus' tree because some of us feel like a bad apple. We feel dirty from sin. We are shamed. We feel rejected. And we need to know that we're free because we're forgiven if we ask for forgiveness, right? Can I get an amen? I just want to know you're getting this. Listen, maybe for Matthew, maybe, maybe for Matthew, the reason why he did this is because this was his story. Maybe the, maybe the people like Rahab and Judah, people like Tamar and Bathsheba, it was because these were his people. He saw them as family. Did you realize we're not family by blood? We're family by Christ. And when you sin, it grieves my heart. Maybe Matthew knew that even though he wasn't blood-related, that all the sin in the family grieved everyone. It grieves the kingdom of God, right? Maybe they were, they were his people. Maybe it was because these were his kind of friends. On the most embarrassing day of his life, do you know what the most embarrassing day of his life was? The day he met Jesus. Go with me to Matthew chapter 9. Go over to Matthew chapter 9. You should be already there. It's page 963 in the Black Bibles in front of you. Matthew chapter 9. I want to tell you Matthew's story, hoping that maybe some of you can either relate to him or relate to some of the people in the video or relate to some of the people uh, in Scripture that we're going to read about. I want to give you some background, however, before we read. I want to give you the background of what happened the day Matthew met Jesus, right before he met Jesus, actually. And then we'll talk about the day that he met him and what happened. So one day in, the, in, in Matthew... Um, Nine, the, Jesus and the disciples, they get off a boat from the Sea of Galilee uh, into the city of Capernaum. And as normal, there was a group of people following uh, Jesus and all of the disciples. And right when Jesus lands on the shore, uh, a group of people brought this paralyzed man and plopped him down in front of Jesus to heal him. Jesus looked at the man and said something rather unusual. He said, be of good cheer. Now, and think about that. If you're paralyzed and someone plops you down in front of a healer and they say, have some joy, you're going to be like, what? I didn't come for joy, dude. I came to be healed. I want to walk. Now, think about this. Think about how we run to God for healing, but we don't run for him for our sins. Because the very next thing that he, Jesus says is, your sins are forgiven. Be, have joy. Your sins are forgiven. His friends and the, and the guy paralyzed, the paralyzed man, they had to be thinking, your sins are forgiven? 
Hey, Jesus, we didn't bring our friend here to forgive his sins. We brought him to to heal him. And it probably was not what the, man, the sick man was thinking either, right? He wasn't looking for forgiveness of, of sins, I don't think. He was looking for healing. And yet Jesus says, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Now, the religious leaders that were there, what were they doing? They were running around trying to catch Jesus. They thought he was a... Uh, blasphemer, and they thought he was a false prophet, and so they were trying to find him saying something that was wrong. These were the teachers of the law. Remember the law? They followed him to find out if he really was who he claimed to be. And they stopped him mid-sentence and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't tell this guy that his sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins. So Jesus turns around and says to them, oh, by the way, in case I forgot to tell you, I was given the authority to forgive sins. I was given the authority to forgive sins. Now, this must have made their blood boil. So they responded, wait a minute, young man. You are saying, by saying that, what you're saying is, you're equal to God. And that is blasphemy. So now there's all this drama around. And the crowd is sitting, and the paralyzed man's just laying on the ground going, would you please just heal me? Would you stop talking to those guys? I just want to walk, Right? Before they could create more drama, Jesus turned away from the church people. Did you hear that? There's a, there's a hidden message there. He turned away from the people who thought they were perfect and loved to point out the flaws of everyone else except their own. You hearing me? He turns to this man. He's claiming to have the power of God. And before they could create any more drama, he turns away from the church people like he had a habit of doing, and he looked at the young man and he said, by the way, young man, why don't you roll up your mat and take it home with you? You are healed. So the people there saw with their own eyes the authority that God had given Jesus. And they were in awe. And by the way, it probably shut the religious folks up for a while real fast. Now, we don't know if Matthew saw that event take place. But we do know when Matthew wrote the account of Jesus' life, he made sure that his audience knew that the moment he met Jesus, the moment he met him, was right after Jesus looked into a sick man's eyes and said, all of your sins are forgiven. Because moments later, Matthew stood eyeball to eyeball with the Savior of the world. Let's read about this encounter. It begins in verse 9. You ready? As Jesus went on from there... He saw a man named Matthew. And Matthew was sitting at a what? Okay, that might not mean much to you. But he was a tax collector. He was sitting at a tax collector's booth. Now, why did we say this was so embarrassing for Matthew? Right after Jesus claims to be God, he walks up to Matthew and he's sitting at a tax collector's booth. Now, here's why that's so embarrassing, just to give you a little history. So Romans would sell the privilege of selling taxes to Roman citizens. Now, we're not in Rome. We're in a Jewish community. But Romans would sell the privilege of, of gathering taxes to Roman citizens. Now, you could go to Rome and you could buy the opportunity to go into Palestine or Judea and collect taxes for the, for the emperor. And the way it works was this. You were given the responsibility of collecting certain percentages of taxes from the government. And you could add a surcharge so that way you could make a profit and live on that profit. And they didn't tell you how much to add. You could add whatever you wanted as a tax collector. So tax collectors were very... Very wealthy. Because they would overtax the people and keep the profit. And as long as Rome was happy with what they were giving them, 
And by the way, there was all kinds of taxes, and I don't know if it feels like today, but there was taxes at the gate, there were taxes at the port, there were fruit taxes, meat taxes, income taxes. Matthew probably had a portable table that he carried around so he could move to all these places and collect whatever he could collect. And any time Rome needed more money, they would just raise the taxes. Kind of sounds like today, right? Now, when you bought this privilege from Rome, you usually bought this privilege for five years. Here's the problem. If you were a Roman citizen and you go into a Jewish community to collect taxes, how popular do you think you're going to be? Zero. Not at all, right? So the Romans got smart and they started to recruit Jewish people to collect taxes from the Jewish community. Maybe it would be easier if people knew who they were. Of course, that, by taking on that job, would make it the worst job that you could do in a Jewish community if you were a Jew. Because now you would be betraying your nation, your people, and in some people's mind, your God. You were a total traitor, an outcast with no friends if you were a tax collector. So any Jewish man who collected taxes was considered the lowest of the low. They were the most hated person in the community. Back then, they used to lump two groups together. Who were they? Tax collectors and sinners. They lumped those two together. So Matthew's a tax collector. Did you hear Matthew's a tax collector? Oh, he's a sinner then. That's what they did. Same thing. Didn't matter. Tax collector meant sinner back then. So that who's, that's who Matthew is. He's an embarrassment to his family. He was not allowed, listen, he was not allowed to step into church or the temple anywhere because he was never clean enough. His only friends were probably other tax collectors and sinners. So... Here comes Jesus. <laughs> Here comes Jesus Cottontail. How do I do that? Here comes... Was, was, that, was that heresy? Lord, forgive me. I can just see him. I can just see, see Jesus approaching Matthew. He's the picture of righteousness. Andy Stanley calls him God in a bod. God in a bod, Right? And he comes walking up to Matthew, a scumbag, a robber, a tax collector, a sinner, whatever you want to call him. And he makes eye contact with him. Can you imagine what was going through his mind as he saw the Son of God walking in his direction, hoping he would just pass by and not address the fact that I'm a tax collector. And he's followed by his disciples, who, by the way, hated tax collectors. They're in the community. These are just normal men following Jesus, trying to save their soul, right, like we are. They may have approached him to pay a toll since they just arrived into the city. I don't know. But what were the 12 men thinking? Who knows? Maybe they were thinking this guy's an embarrassment and he's not representing the Jews. And so maybe they just pass him by and let Judas pay the tax. I don't know. But do they sneer at him? Are they whispering to each other while they're standing there and they're paying the tax? Are they sending the message that they don't approve of him like a lot of Christians do today? Is it hard for them not to say something out loud and remind him that he's a sinner? A nobody, a screw-up, a mistake? Folks, we have to learn not to treat people this way with our human lenses because this is what Jesus said to this outcast, this sinner, this tax collector. You know what he said? Go ahead, Richard. Follow me. That needs to be our message. To the ones that we think are an embarrassment to our family. Follow Jesus. We can learn a lot from that one statement. 
we can learn a lot about how to treat other people who are in sin by that one statement. Well, the disciples must have flipped out. They must have been thinking or maybe even saying, you're kidding me, Jesus, him? Are you sure him? You want him to come with us. I mean, at least we're just fishermen, but he's a tax collector. And guess where they were going? Guess where Jesus wanted to go? To his house. Isn't that interesting? The last part of the verse says, Matthew got up and followed him. We don't know if it was right away or not, because Matthew did have a job. Maybe he had to find a replacement to take someone to take over his responsibility. But at some point, he followed Jesus, and Jesus says, let's go to your house. I want to eat. Now, to us, that's not a big deal. You know, I mean, we, we don't really do that nowadays, because, I mean, I don't know the last time I've been invited over to your house. So I don't think, and I don't know the last time you've been invited over to my house. So I'm not just pointing my fingers at you. We don't do that. But we think it's kind of normal, right? But this was not. It may not be a big deal to us today, but back then, this was huge. Because in a moment, the perfect Christians that we're going to talk about, you know, the religious people, the church people, they're going to explain to us why. But talking to him, the disciples had to be thinking, talking to him, Jesus was embarrassing enough. Now we're going to go into his home? What would people think of us? You're going to discredit you being the Messiah, you being the Son of God. You're going to discredit your ministry by going into the home of a sinner. And then Jesus must have, if you read verse 10, he must have asked Matthew to invite all of his friends. So Jesus has a way of just ramping up the tension. Because one sinner is one thing, but go and invite all your sinner friends? I mean, he, he knows the religious people are watching, and he's stirring the pot. Just like he does in your life with conviction, by the way. He's not trying to make you angry. He's trying to show you a different way. Right? Verse 10. Many, everybody say many. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and the disciples. Now, I'm sure as Matthew wrote this story out, he must have remembered that day that when all of this was going down. He probably remembers the whispers from the disciples, the dirty looks from everybody around, all the church people following him, all the things that they probably said out loud trying to get Jesus to stop all of this nonsense. And as we read on, all the religious people gather around outside of the home of Matthew, these perfect Christians who would have never stepped foot into a sinner's home because it went against their law. They, you know, the law they were famous for following to a T. They asked another one of those dumb questions that we're probably all guilty of asking. The one, one of those questions that reveals that you aren't so perfect after all. Just by your question reveals that you're not so perfect after all. Because in your question, there is judgment. In your question, there is hate. In your question, you lift yourself up and you tear the other person down. I'm sure you don't know what I'm talking about, right? Verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked this dumb question to the disciples. Why? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, they were just confused about what was happening. On one hand, Jesus is saying he's the son of God, righteous and holy. And then he goes into a tax collector's home. That would make him unholy. So this, these, these religious people are being wrecked. Their religion was being challenged. And I believe Jesus intended to do that. Even though he's ministering to Matthew, he's also ministering to the church. Jesus overhears them, and he says this in verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, 
It is not. Everybody said it is not. The healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Can you imagine what Matthew and his friends thought about that statement? See, we are so fragile and so, we, we, so, we're, we're so offended so easily today that if Jesus would have said that to us, or if your pastor says this to you, or your mentor, or anybody for the ma that matter, if anybody would have said, you're sick, you're unhealthy, you're messed up, you need a doctor, and I'm not talking about a physical doctor. But you know what? Matthew and his friends did not get offended. You need to realize something. Do you know what people who are far from God know? They know they're far from God. They do. Did you know that? People who are far from God are from God. Most of the time. Matthew knew. Matthew knew. You may get offended if I tell you you're, you're messed up and you need Jesus. You may get offended of that, but after I leave and after your offense, you're going to probably say to yourself, he's right, I am. And I do need Jesus. Matthew knew, verse 13. Verse 13, but go and learn what this means, Jesus goes on to say. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. He said that he had not come to call good people, but he came for the sinners. And that did not offend Matthew and his friends because they knew they were sinners. You see, as Matthew wrote his own story out, he realized that he must include sinners in the genealogy of Jesus, in the story of Jesus, because that was the whole point, right? Because he saw Jesus live out this mission. It was real to him. Jesus was real to Matthew in your notes. Matthew understood perhaps better than any of the other gospel writers that the story of Jesus and the story of Christmas is the story of God drawing nearer to those who had drawn away from him. Let me repeat that because this is huge. Matthew understood that the story of God is, the story of Christmas is God drawing nearer to those who have fallen away, who have drawn away from him. It was the story then. It's still the case today. God leans in towards those that are hurting, who, ha who, are, who have been hurt by someone, and it wasn't their fault. He leans into those who have no control of their situation. For, he leans into those who have a lack of knowledge about something that's going on in their life. And because of that, they found themselves leaning away from God because of all the trials that life throws at people. Matthew knew that he had to highlight the problems in this genealogy. He had to highlight it because they reflect why Jesus came in the first place. At the end of the three years with Jesus, Matthew had discovered that when Jesus came, he changed the rules in terms of what it meant to approach God. Isn't that awesome? Listen, he changed the rules. You see, the reason that Matthew had probably drawn away from God is because the thinking then is just like the thinking is now. And that is, in order for me to approach God, it must be based on what I've done or what I have not done. Works. Am I a good boy or a bad boy? And the only way I can approach God is if I'm sin-free. Matthew knew that. The thinking is that the only reason that God would take me seriously is because I've done good things and I've done my best to avoid bad things. In your notes, last thing I want you to fill in. 
But now Matthew understood that a tax collector, a sinner, and you a sinner. I'm not saying you're all sinners this morning, but, you know, when we're in sin. The point is that everyone and anyone could approach God at any time. Wow. That's the Christmas story. Anyone and everyone can approach God at any time. Not based on a good act, but just simply based on what Jesus did for you on the cross. The rules had changed, and the sinners in Jesus' family tree were the point of Christmas, the gift of Christmas. And that God did not come for those high and mighty Christian leaders who thought they had life all under control and look down on the ones who keep screwing up in line. You see, this is why Jesus wants to partner with us. You can sit there as a Christian and say, well, I thought he came for me. Well, if you're already a Christian, the work has already started and it's done as far as that fact. Now he wants to partner with you to go get more people. So he may be the doctor, you're the nurse. Go get him. Help him. Bring them into the kingdom. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. Listen, this is, what I, this is what I see. We have people in our family, because we're talking about family trees, right? We have people in our family that you're going to be either just sat with at Thanksgiving or you're going to be sitting with them at Christmas. We have to stop looking down on the ones who keep screwing up in life. Because that's not going to bring them to Jesus. We have to practice forgiveness. So here's what we're going to do. For the next few weeks, we're going to look at the stories of some of these bad apples, so to speak. Now, I know that you're asking yourself still, what, what in the world, why would we focus on bad people at Christmas time? The answer is because when the angel announced the birth of Jesus, he announced him as the Savior of the world, like Bobby prayed in the beginning. The Savior. Savior from what? Savior from sin. That is the point of Christmas. So this family tree that you probably thought before today was perfect, and now you know it's pretty messy, is the point of Jesus' birth. No matter how good you are, no matter how good your attendance is at church, and no matter how much money you give to the church, it's not good enough. So let me speak to you this morning. I want you to close your eyes, and I, just want, you to, I want you to just look at your heart, okay? I would bet that many of you think about what you haven't done. For God. Maybe you thought about all the years that you've wasted and you just beat yourself up. Or maybe you look at other Christians and say, I could never be like them because I could never read my Bible as much as they do. Or I could never pray as much as they do. I could never preach a sermon. Do you know you're all capable of preaching a sermon? You just share what you're passionate about. It's the word of God that's powerful, not me, right? Come on. So you're all capable of it. Some of you are thinking about, as you look in your heart right now, you're thinking about how much you failed God. And you failed Him a lot. I bet that there are things that you see right now, and, and we're not focusing on other family members, by the way, right now. We're focusing on us. I bet that there are things that you're ashamed of. I bet that you can think of some things that make you not good enough to approach God. And so as you look at those things, I, I, I want you to just wrap them up, because you're going to give them to God this morning. My goal for you is that if you don't feel good enough to be a super Christian this morning, that you stop trying. Did you hear me? If you don't feel good enough to be a super Christian, then stop trying. That's not what Christmas is about. 
That is why Matthew included the failures in this story of Jesus, because it was the failures and the sinners that are the point of the Christmas story. So if you're here today, in a moment after we're done, you can check box number one on the back of your connection card. We're going to put all of these in the basket, but just keep your eyes closed for now. If you're here today and you recognize yourself as a sinner, someone that has never asked the Lord to be Lord of your life, you've never asked him into your life, you can do that and just say a prayer and say, Father, I am a sinner. Wash me with your blood. Make me clean. Make me pure in your sight. I want to change my life. I want to do it differently. I want to follow you as Matthew decided to do. And he changed the world because of that decision to get up and walk away from his sin and follow Jesus. Forgive me of my sins. I want to be in your family in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me on the cross. I believe you died and I believe you rose from the dead so that I could be in your family and that I could be forgiven and set free. Now, if you, if you said that prayer in your heart, you have to realize that the prayer doesn't save you. Now you have to trust him with your life. Now you have to actually change your behaviors. You may have to change some friends. You have to walk away from sin. Give him your life. Give, trust him with your finances. Trust him with your children. Trust him with every area of your life. That's what it really means to be saved. If you're truly saved, people will notice it. Because a good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. Right, guys? Maybe you're here today as your eyes are closed and you're looking at your heart. Maybe you just walked away from God and nobody knows, but you just walked away from Him in your heart. Or maybe everybody knows because you just walked away from church and everything. It's just about saying, Jesus, this story of Matthew, this point of Christmas reminded me today that I can be restored with you. You don't have to say the sinner's prayer. You don't have to redo it. You, you, you probably never lost your salvation. You just walked away from God. You walked away from church. So you just need to say, forgive me for walking away. Forgive me for putting you on a shelf. I'm going to renew my relationship with you this morning. I'm going to serve you with all of my heart. And then surround yourself with people who will help you do that. Come to Wednesday night. Go to a life group. And then there's box three and four on your connection cards as you have your eyes closed. Maybe you're here today and you're, you are a believer. You have Jesus in your life, but you kind of been, you felt stuck. Like you haven't felt God's presence for a while or you just don't feel like you're really, really passionate about Christianity or Jesus or God or just about anything. And, you, and you're just stuck. Ask God for the gift of forgiveness for your mistakes. Maybe you're beating yourself up over something that happened 10 years ago. Forgive yourself. He already did. If you ask for forgiveness, you've been set free. Forgive yourself. Those of you, box number four is for those of you that have been Christians for some time. I, I, just ask God for a deeper passion for those hurting, broken, confused, and lost people that are in your circle. Maybe it's, maybe it's someone real close to you. Maybe it's family members. Maybe it's the drunk uncle that you're just going to ask God for a deeper passion and compassion for those who keep screwing up or have screwed up. And Jesus just needs some nurses to go around and say, that's why I'm a Christian, because I want to help you. I want to show you the way out of your hurt, out of your brokenness, out of your confusion. Amen. Everybody say in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I just want to open the altar as we close to make sure that you're more than welcome to come up here. If you have some business to do with God, we're not going to lay hands on you unless you ask us to. Um, but we just want, if you, if you need to come and just forgive yourself or ask for forgiveness for the first time or, or maybe forgive someone else, you need, to, you need to do that. Don't rush out of here. Don't rush downstairs. 
Spend some time with God. I hope that you'll join us next week as we continue the series because we're going to go into detail about these characters and you may relate to one of them. Invite someone next week. Encourage them to come every Sunday for this series because some of your friends and family need to hear this. The love of God coming into their valley and drawing them out into their brokenness and healing them. That's the point of the Christmas story. Father, I just pray for all the prayers that we just said in our hearts, Lord. And I just want to confirm it today with a closing prayer. Father, that you would just cement every decision that was made this morning in people's hearts. That they won't just say a prayer, Father, but their actions will be changed. That they will be a different person. And sometimes it's difficult, Lord, when we come in as a couple, boyfriend and girlfriend even, and one person seeks forgiveness and the other one's just shut down and they want to remain angry. Father, don't let that other person... The prayer is this. We don't want that other person to rob us of our freedom. So I'm going to remain free regardless of their decision because their decision is between them and God. But I'm not going to just let them rob me of it. I'm forgiven. I'm set free. And I'm going to walk in that freedom and I'm going to pray that someday you will seek forgiveness and you will be free. But I'm not going to let it divide us. Sin shouldn't divide the church. It should draw us closer together, right? We're a family. Lord, this is, we may never reach the perfection that Jesus walked in, but Lord, we are striving for it. The Bible says, I am holy, therefore you should be holy. Father, we're just striving for that. And we don't want to just be able to forgive ourselves, Lord, but we want to be able to go to Christmas dinners and Thanksgiving dinners and Easter dinners with our family, Father. We want to be able to sit with the, with the relative that bugs us the most. And in some way, and I'm not saying be their best friend, but in some way, Show them love. Try to help them come out of their broken state by not screaming, but by whispering scriptures of love, statements of love. Maybe it's just a hug. Maybe it's not words at all. You know, some of your relatives are just waiting for you to just hug them and say, I love you. You don't need to preach to them. They already know the truth. They think you're judging them and by your sneers and by your looks and by your body action, the fact that you won't sit even near them, that's the message you're sending. You are hating them. Maybe just sitting next to them without even saying a word and just talking about their job. Maybe they'll walk away going, wow, I can't believe Susie sat next to me today. I thought she hated me. I can't believe Robert hugged me today. And maybe they'll contact you and say, why did you hug me today? I thought you hated me. Maybe a Something will be healed over it. We have that opportunity. We're the nurses. If he's the doctor, then we're his medical team. And we're supposed to be spreading this point of the story to the whole world and stop looking down at people from our high, mighty places of religion and our perf perfectness that we think we're walking in. In the name of Jesus, Father, help us to be humbled by this message. That you came for sinners, and that's our job. You're, you're waiting, you're pausing to come again so that we will be your medical team and go and spread the gospel and disciple and baptize people in the name of Jesus. Not just invite them to church. We're supposed to go save people. It's not the pastor's role. The pastor teaches us how to do it, and we're to go do it. So go do it, guys. In the name of Jesus, everybody say, in the name of Jesus, I'm going to go do it. I'm going to show forgiveness. 
can't hear you. I'm going to show mercy. I'm going to show compassion. Love. Right? In Jesus' name, amen. I love you guys. Go do it.